Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Just this past week, I received an email from a friend who's been listening to the podcast, and she said all kinds of lovely, wonderful things that um, meant so much to me. Um, She said that reading these essential texts has been kind of helping her make sense of things in her life that haven't made sense and that she's been able to feel really empowered and validated. And so, of course, I was just thrilled um, because that's the effect that all of these texts have had on my life as well. And that's why I'm doing this whole project. Um, Specifically in her email, she said something that was um, so timely for this week's topic. She said, this is a quote, quote, I feel like I've woken from a deep sleep and have been starving for this knowledge. That's the end of the quote. So today we will be reading a passage from a book where literally the main character wakes up from a deep sleep, literally and metaphorically, and she literally and metaphorically is starving when she wakes up. So I think a lot of our listeners will really relate to this text. It's The Awakening by Kate Chopin. It was published in 1899. But before I get ahead of myself, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Shauna Wrench. Hi, Shauna. Hi, Amy. Should we forge ahead and go on to the bio of Kate Chopin and um, kind of a little bit about who she was? Okay, so she was born Catherine O'Flaherty in St. Louis, Missouri on February 8th, 1850. At the age of five, Kate was sent to Sacred Heart Academy, a Catholic school. She loved to read, and she was actually taught how to handle her own money and how to make her own decisions. Sadly, when Kate was a little girl, her father died. Um, So Kate was brought back home um, from the Catholic school to live with her mother and her grandmother and her great-grandmother. So this was a household of three generations of single women. All of these women had been widowed young and had never remarried. For two years, she was tutored at home by her great-grandmother, who taught her French and music and history. And then after those two years, Kate went back to Sacred Heart Academy, and she had a wonderful teacher who encouraged her to write and develop her critical thinking skills. All of this, again, super rare for girls at the time. Um, In St. Louis, Missouri, on June 8th, 1870, skipping way ahead, Kate married Oscar Chopin and settled with him in his hometown of New Orleans. And then Kate gave birth to their baby, their first baby, the following year. And then in total, she had six children in eight years. And then to make matters harder, the year that the the very year that the last child was born in 1879, Kate's husband, Oscar, lost his livelihood. His cotton brokerage failed. So the family had to leave New Orleans. They moved to Cloutierville in a different town in Louisiana to manage several small plantations and a general store. So in 1882, Kate's husband, Oscar, died. At this point, she was 32 years old. She had six children from the ages of 12 down to three. And when Oscar died, he left $42,000 in debt. And I looked it up and um, accounting for inflation, that would be approximately $1 million of debt. So for a while, Kate, after her husband died, Kate ran her husband's business Although Chopin worked to, she worked to make her late husband's plantation and general store succeed, it just 
couldn't. She couldn't manage it by herself. And two years later, she sold the business and she moved back to St. Louis to live by her mother. And her children gradually settled into life into St. Louis, but Chopin's mother died the following year. So leaving her just utterly alone um, with her children. And after that, she really struggled with depression. So Kate Chopin went to her obstetrician and she said, I'm so, so depressed. I need help. And his prescription for her was that she start writing. In the early 1890s, Chopin was publishing short stories and articles and translations that were appearing in periodicals. It turns out, in retrospect, she was actually an incredible writer, but at the time, her strong literary capacity and quality was, was mostly overlooked. In 1899, her second novel, The Awakening, was published, and some newspaper critics reviewed the novel favorably, but most condemned it as being vulgar and immoral and offensive. So it got mostly terrible reviews. It devastated Chopin that the the novel was received so poorly. Um, and she kind of faded into obscurity. People didn't really read her. Her book was um, out of print for several decades. It wasn't rediscovered until the 1970s when there was a wave of new studies and appreciation of women's writings. And so then the novel was reprinted and gained critical acclaim for the writing quality and seen then as like, oh my gosh, this is a really important early feminist work. Anyway, uh, back to Chopin. Uh, she actually passed away at quite a young age. She was visiting the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, and she suffered a brain hemorrhage and passed away two days later. But that's a bit about the author. So um, like we said, we're going to just outline a bit of the story just so we kind of have a framework to go through. So so Shauna, could you tell us, just kind of give us a summary of The Awakening? Yes. So... um... So the novel opens with the, I'm going to keep saying these names, Pontellier family. Um, So there's Leonce, a New Orleans businessman of Louisiana Creole heritage, his wife, Edna, and then their two sons, Etienne and Raul. And they're all vacationing on Grand Isle. It's a resort on the Gulf of Mexico. And it's managed by Madame Lebrun and her two sons, Robert and Victor. Edna spends most of her time with her close friend, Adele Ratignol, who cheerily and boisterously uh, reminds Edna of her duties as a wife and mother. And at Grand Isle, Edna eventually forms a connection with Robert. And he's just this young, charming, earnest young man who actively seeks Edna's attention and affections. And it seems casual at first, but Edna begins to think of him more and they kind of separately realize that they have this infatuation. And then suddenly Robert senses the doomed nature of such a relationship and flees to Mexico under the guise of pursuing a a nameless business venture. So then we shift our focus to Edna and we start to pretty much go into her emotions as she reconciles her womanly duties with her desire for social and sexual freedom to be with Robert since she's a married woman. So then summer vacation ends and the family returns to New Orleans and Edna gradually starts to reassess her priorities and take a more active role in her happiness. This is kind of her awakening. She starts to isolate herself from New Orleans society and she withdraws from some of the duties traditionally associated with being a wife and mother at the time. 
And Leonce eventually talks to a doctor about diagnosing his wife, fearing that she's losing her, her mental faculties. And he advises her husband to just let her be and assures him that things will return to normal. But here's how he phrases his recommendation. Quote, Pontillier said the doctor, woman is a very peculiar and delicate organism. It would require an inspired psychologist to deal successfully with them. Most women are moody and whimsical. This is some passing whim of her wife due to some cause and ca- or causes which you and I needn't try to fathom, but it will pass happily over, end quote. And so they just dismiss understanding her, basically treat her like she's, you know, a machine that's on the fritz, but will eventually get back to normal. So Leonce prepares to travel to New York on business and his mother comes to take the boys to her home. And so being left alone for an extended period really gives Edna physical and emotional room to breathe and reflect on these various aspects of her life. So while her husband's away, she moves out of their home and into a small bungalow nearby. And she begins an affair with a man in the neighborhood who's basically kind of known as a suitor and has a reputation for being free in his affections with you know lots of women. And Edna reaches out to another woman who's kind of an independent, um, Mademoiselle Reese. And she's a gifted pianist whose playing is just renowned, but she maintains a generally hermetic existence. And Reese is important because she's in contact with Robert in Mexico and she's receiving letters from him. And Edna begs her to reveal the contents of the letters. And when she does, she proves to Edna that Robert's still thinking about her. So she kind of reignites this flame. Eventually, Robert returns to New Orleans. At first, he's really aloof and finds reasons to avoid Edna, and she's just heartbroken. And then after a few meetings, her unhappiness kind of softens his guard, and they admit their feelings. And so after a first kiss between them, he laments about her belonging to Leonce, and she's called away to help Adele with a difficult childbirth. And Adele suspects Edna's affair and really pleads with her to think of what she'd be doing Um, if she doesn't behave appropriately. And when Edna returns home, she finds a note from Robert stating that he's left and he loves her too much to shame her by engaging in a relationship with a married woman. So she returns to Grand Isle where she and Robert first met and without seeing any way to feel fulfilled without causing pain to those around her, she decides that her only escape is to drown herself in the Gulf of Mexico. And so the end of the story is she swims out with no plans to return and just slowly lets the water take her. Ugh. It's so sad. It's so sad. (laughs) So sad. Okay. (laughs) We're going to discuss just a couple of themes from the book. So first we're going to talk about the, the matrix of patriarchy. In terms of the patriarchy that Edna experiences as the main character of the novel, So she's in this white French upper class community in New Orleans. And I'll just start out with a quote that that illustrates this. So, quote, at a very early period, she had apprehended instinctively the dual life, that outward existence, which conforms the inward life, which questions. She had all her life long been accustomed to harbor thoughts and emotions which never voiced themselves. Um, So first of all, reading that, I 
one thing that comes to me is that it's it's important to point out that that happens to men too. It's not like all the men were out there living these free, fulfilling lives um, while all the women were trapped and kept under the thumbs of their husbands. That's not the case at all. Most men also were you know, living lives of quiet desperation. However, at the time, especially in the late 1800s, men did get to go to school. They got to go to college. Women, almost no women went to college. They were lucky if they got to go to any school. Men did have the freedom to have multiple relationships with women and date around and play the field before marriage much more than young women did. And that's significant because later on, Edna talks about these wild, passionate crushes that she's had throughout her life that she was never able to act on. And so she has like this repressed desire in her that she's never been able to explore. Okay, a couple more quotes to demonstrate the these patriarchal constructs. This one was like one that I will take with me forever, I think. So there's this scene where Edna learns to swim. And this is a really big, important part of her awakening. She swims out to sea early in the book, and she almost drowns. She goes too far. She's not as strong as she thinks she is. And when she comes back to the shore, she tells her husband, she's like, I was, I could have drowned out there. She was really proud of herself, but she was a little bit like, uh, (laughs) that was scary. And her husband says this, quote, you were not so very far, my dear. I was watching you, he told her, end quote. Okay, so first of all, just that dismissiveness is so characteristic of this husband that he just kind of like downplays anything she says about her observations and her feelings. But I want to just quickly talk about this concept of him watching her. One way of understanding the sense of the watcher is the one who acts. He's the subject. And then the watched person is the object that has no power. And that's like Simone de Beauvoir later will read how she talks about the man is the one and the woman is the other. Men look at women. Women watch themselves being looked at. And that sentiment spreads and infects other aspects of life. A woman's ideas, actions, and desires are also perceived to be less important than those of the man. So that concept of permeating omnipresent invisible systems that place women's ideas and women's actions and women's desires and their sexuality as less important than a man's, to me, I, I read that. And I'm like, but that's the exact definition of patriarchy. And, and Kate Chopin does a masterful job of demonstrating that feeling in The Awakening. She really does. And it was interesting because when you put it in those terms, you really see it like in a different lens. So there's a few quotes where she shows this like presence of men's authority in the system where really what they think want is more important. And it's interesting because even if they don't exercise their ability to exert control, they get to decide if they want to or not, right? Like it's a choice that they're making. And it's, it's a really great reminder. I'm so glad you pointed out that Leonce could have exerted more control over Edna. So that shows that's just an unjust system, but it's nice that he doesn't, he doesn't ever hit her. 
he's super like dismissive, but he doesn't scream at her or threaten her. And like when he goes out of town, he sends boxes of sweets. And so there's this other quote, too, where um, like Edna's girlfriends all say they all declared that Mr. Pontellier was the best husband in the world. And Mrs. Pontellier was forced to admit that she knew of none better. Right. So he's self-centered and insensitive and he's a total jerk sometimes, but he's not a complete brute. And I actually really I like that Kate Chopin does create her husband's character as that he's not a monster. Um, cause it's like, it's easy to see, I think it's really useful, right? Because it's easy to see the harm in patriarchy when a man is violent. It's harder to see it when he's a pretty nice guy. And so in some ways it's almost a harder, um, oppression to break out of because it's harder for the woman to see it and to confront it and deal with it. And if she does, then she can really easily be called too sensitive, like she's overreacting because he's not he's not beating her. And so if right. she complains, then she's just being hysterical or right. overreacting. Yeah. And I think it's just interesting because I feel like the way that he's portrayed is that he wants to not have those reactions, right? Like he wants things mm-hmm. to be okay but it's all on his terms, which is what he doesn't have to look at because he's the male, right? Like he doesn't Mm. see the oppression of those kinds of feelings on his part. So like there's one scene where we really get to see the character of their relationship. And so he comes home after a late night at the hotel where like all the men hang out and he comes in and he's just excited and talkative and Edna's asleep. And so he wakes her up and wants to talk to her about everything that happened in his day and tell her all the gossip he heard and having this whole conversation. And so she's basically half asleep and barely paying attention to him. And his response is that he gets really irritated that she won't pay attention to him. So he goes and checks on their boys and he decides that one of them has a fever and wakes Edna up to go take care of him. And she claims that he's fine when he went to bed and it's probably fine now And Leonce begins to lecture her about her neglect of the children and basically says, tells her like for how much he does, all the things he handles for their life, all the work that he provides, he can't also be responsible for the children and worry about them. And so she finally gives in and goes and checks on the boys. And we can assume that they're fine because she comes back and sits on the bed, but is mad. Like she basically refuses to engage with him. So he finishes his his cigar and goes to bed and she's thoroughly awake at this point and just begins to cry. And she goes out on the porch, which I was just like, probably because she doesn't want to disturb anybody, you know, and just continues to have this long cry. And you just see this part of him. That's it's not overtly, you know, brutal, but it's very self-centered. It's very Mm -hmm. like self it just about him where she just feels like she doesn't even have space to take up her own being. Mm -hmm. And it just sets up this, uh, you know, tone in their relationship. That's just so hard to Mm -hmm. watch. (laughs) Totally. I hated that part. It was so painful. And then I think that that quote is like, it represents kind of the very beginning of the awakening where she's starting to feel all the feelings, but she's like, I don't even know. I, this isn't a big deal. I'm just crying. I, I'm just having to cry. People cry, right? She's kind of like not identifying what what had happened, but but the feeling is starting to come in like a storm. Yeah. Um. Okay, that's all I had on the patriarchy part. So um, 
let's go into motherhood, Shauna, and you can take it away. Yeah. So um, her experience with motherhood is really important to the story. After the scene where he, her husband criticizes her parenting and, you know, says that he can't also worry about the children because he's doing so much for their life. We see this quote where it's, she's compared to what a woman should be like. So it says, quote, in short, Mrs. Pontellier was not a mother woman. The mother women seemed to prevail that summer at Grand Isle. It was easy to know them, fluttering about with extended, protecting wings when any harm, real or imaginary, threatened their precious brood. They were women who idolized their children, worshipped their husbands, and esteemed it a holy privilege to efface themselves and as individuals and grow wings as ministering angels, end quote. So we see the embodiment of a mother woman and her friend Adele, and she actually openly expresses to Edna at various points about how she should act and wants her to conform. But the language in this quote is so interesting because the words that they use where mothers are supposed to idolize their children, worship their husbands and be angels. It's just got like this religious overtone that really shows how they were trying to cage women into this role. And her character's, really contrasted to other women who are doing it right. But to do it right means diminishing oneself as an individual and catering to their husband and children as if they themselves don't have needs, mm-hmm. which is so hurtful. Like mm-hmm. that's not where you want any woman to be or any no. person to be, you know? No, it's not mentally healthy. And it's so funny that I feel like even the way I describe it, she lacks the self-sacrificing and overbearing relationship with her children which shouldn't be a fault. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. it's just the way it's described in the story, but it's really considered something faulty in her character. Um, But she tries to explain it to her friend. So it says, quote, Edna had once told Madame Ratignol that she would never sacrifice herself for her children or for anyone and says, I would give up the unessential. I would give my money. I would give my life for my children, but I wouldn't give myself, end quote. And so just, I think that's such a strong statement about the difference between her life and her inner self. Like she's basically saying she would die for her children, but she's not willing to live a life where she can't be her own person, which is totally against what, like you said, like the self-sacrificing woman is just supposed to cater to her family's needs and basically not exist. And that's like the idealized woman, which is not how we want women to feel or be treated. Um, But so she really struggles with her desire for independence and her self-identity and then this duty to her children. And it really ends up being the last straw for her um, because she figures out, like she releases her attachment to her husband and his money. She moves out of the house and like starts making her own money with painting. Um, She really gives up the societal norms of how she should act. But she realizes that her children have a claim to her that she can't throw away. She can't remove herself from um, and really struggles with it. Uh, It says, quote, but I don't want anything but my own way. That is wanting a good deal, of course, when you have to trample upon the lives, the hearts, the prejudices of others. But no matter Still, I shouldn't want to trample upon the little lives, end quote. Mm -hmm. So she really battles this. Um, 
She wants her own way, but she doesn't want to hurt her children. And it really starts to hit hard right towards the end. Um, She says, quote, still she remembered Adele's voice whispering, think of the children, think of them. She meant to think of them. That determination had driven into her soul like a death wound. So she can't create a life where she's a mother and free to be herself because the demands of the role are too restrictive. And it's interesting that the only independent woman that we meet in the story is Mademoiselle Reese, and she doesn't have children. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so it's there. Women are presented with like a binary choice. It's either or. You can either pursue your own interests and talents like Mademoiselle Reese, who's a pianist and she's a a quote unquote spinster, right? She's not married. She doesn't have kids. Then you can be independent and you can be a self, like a, a developed self, or you can have a family. And I just think I wish she could have just been herself as a mom. She probably could have been a wonderful mother and derived a lot of joy from it if she had been able to anyway. Yes. Okay, um, so our last topic to discuss is the actual awakening um, itself. Like like we've already kind of described, Edna had been kind of sleepwalking through her life, doing everything that she was supposed to do, but not really living, living deliberately or, or authentically. So there are a few ways that Chopin um, really illustrates that Edna is waking up. The first one is she she has this conversation with her friend Adele and it says, quote, she was flushed and felt intoxicated with the sound of her own voice and the unaccustomed taste of candor. It muddled her like wine or like a first breath of freedom, end quote. So just, I just wanted to highlight that because um, I really related to it, like to that, that feeling of hearing myself express my real true thoughts, my real true feelings to a friend. And sometimes just the act of saying things out loud is liberating. Um, Another thing that Chopin writes about is there's this recurring um, memory that Edna has of when she was a little girl and she was walking through a field. And that, that memory of the open meadow where she's a little girl walking across this big, beautiful green open meadow, it comes back to her in the final scene where she's decided to take her life and she sees herself in this open meadow and field. But I just thought those memories of being a child, of running away from those first restrictive oppressive rules, and in this case, it's it's represented by church and her father, she's, she's running away from that repressive church and home environment. And I just thought that was interesting to get back in touch with what that felt like as a child to, to run free, right? Yeah. And I thought it was great that we got to see her as a child. It reminds us that her awakening is going back to something that she Mm. knew. I feel like the awakening becomes really dramatic and very intense because she hasn't had the opportunity to have those feelings for such a long time. Yeah, totally. Um, And then the last thing that Chopin uses to um, kind of highlight or to describe Edna's waking up, it's it's a metaphor that runs throughout the book, is the power of the sea. So I'll read this quote that describes Edna going to the beach, because of course she's on an island, but we learn that Edna didn't know how to swim at the beginning of the story. So here's this passage. It says, quote, 
Edna had attempted all summer to learn to swim. She had received instructions from both the men and women, in some instances from the children. A certain ungovernable dread hung about her when in the water, unless there was a hand nearby that might reach out and reassure her. But that night, she was like a little, tottering, stumbling, clutching child who of a sudden realizes its powers and walks for the first time alone, boldly and with overconfidence. She could have shouted for joy. She did shout for joy, as with a sweeping stroke or two, she lifted her body to the surface of the water. A feeling of exultation overtook her, as if some power of significant import had been given her to control the working of her body and her soul. She grew daring and reckless, overestimating her strength. She wanted to swim far out where no woman had swum before. How easy it is, she thought. It's nothing, she said aloud. Why did I not discover before that it was nothing? Think of the time I have lost splashing about like a baby, end quote. So, I mean, we don't even need to like analyze that too deeply. Like the metaphor is so clear and so powerful, right? But that's yeah, what were your thoughts on on kind of the effects of her awakening, Shauna? What it's it's so hard because I feel like you see all these positive effects, but then there's obviously places where it's not, you know, it's it's like harder to watch. So mm. I feel like they describe, you know, ignorance is bliss. Like she could have lived in the sleepwalking state forever and she would have been provided for financially and had a nice life and all those kinds of things, but She says, quote, perhaps it is better to wake up after all, even to suffer, rather than to remain a dupe to illusions all one's life. So I feel like she has this sense of her life being harder and she's really like dealing with real emotions, real pain. You know, she's like lost Robert. She has all these feelings, but really is considering whether she would have been okay to live the life she was before, right? Like whether Mm -hmm. she would have wanted to stay sleepwalking if it meant that she didn't have to experience kind of the pain that she was going through. Mm -hmm. But we really see like then the negative aspects of her awakening really come in her relationships with other people. Mm. So I feel like she, while she finds space for herself, she doesn't really work to bring anybody else into this new life. And she just wants to kind of shed as much of her life as possible and really disengages from her responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, anyway. Ugh. Okay. Well, this, that brings us to the end of the discussion, Shauna. So what, what conclusions or takeaways do you think you'll take away from this book? I think she just did such a good job opening this character up. And when you were reading the description, you said something like that, like we really saw the inner workings of this female character and her struggle and the fact that we're not given the happy ending. It's just so raw and hard to read, but it made it super impactful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, Shauna, thank you. This was such a great, great, rich discussion. I had so much fun reading and talking about this book with you. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad I got to be a part of this. It was really, really, really fun.